is Matthew chapter 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything that they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and then when you've succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides! You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools! Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred. You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint and dill and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter, but without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites! You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets, and you decorate the graves of the righteous, and you say, If we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. You testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then, and complete what your ancestors started, you snakes, 
you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on the earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I tell you, all this will come to this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Today we're going to look at religious theater and gospel ministry. And maybe this is your first day in church and you're thinking, what a Sunday to show up and hear Jesus unload his gun, theologically speaking, on these religious leaders and Pharisees. Just a Sunday of woes. Can there be any good news? Yes, there is. Religious theater and gospel ministry. I'm going to break this text into two sections. We're going to first explore the historical significance of what Jesus is getting at. Because everything Jesus says has a lot of deep cuts. Deep, historical, theological, hermeneutical, First Testament cuts. So we want to explore historical significance. And then after that, we want to consider present relevance for all of this. So first, the historical significance. God's intent since Genesis 15. From the beginning, from the jump, God's intent has been to bless all people through his people. God's whole goal has has been to do this. But the Pharisees, whose life and ministry was intended to be a bridge... God's chosen people their whole life, they were intended to the nations to be a bridge. They've become this massive barrier. God chose one nation to bless all the nations. God's heart has always been for all the nations. But it's all come to this, religious theater. And religious theater produces a lot of activity, but no ministry. Religious theater is all about leveraging God. Self-righteous religious people, they do have a faith in God. It's a misguided faith. They do, even in their own hearts and minds, believe that they love God. But their view of God has become so utterly contorted that they're not really loving God. Everything they do is about leveraging God. They don't love others. They're trying to impress others. Their very vocation was to be a bridge and a blessing and to serve others And here the Pharisees have made their entire religious institution about the impressing of others. Whereas real gospel ministry, it it is about loving God and glorifying God and loving others. And so let's start to break out the historical significance of the things Jesus says. In verse 2 he says they preach but they don't practice. And then in verse 4 he says they're burdening people with the way that they teach. And they sit in Moses' seat. And he uses this phrase. Jesus says they sit in Moses' seat which was a literal uh, seat in the temple. Uh, 
where they would sit in order to teach and minister God's word. And so that's why Jesus says, listen to what they're saying, because they're sitting in Moses' seat. In other words, the law that they are reading from, the content is right. The content is wise. The content is good, as they are reading directly from the scroll. As soon as they put the scroll away and then begin to give their interpretation of God's law, the application is an utter gong show. Because, of course, the purpose of the law was never to, in and of itself, be a mechanism for salvation. The purpose of the law was to point to everybody's very need for salvation. The purpose of the law that God gave in that Old Testament mosaic context, which is divided into a few categories, dietary laws, sexual laws, civic laws, the laws concerning the way they dressed, all of these things were symbols and signs because the ancient world lived in symbols and signs and they were all pointing towards need for purity, need for holiness, because the God they worshipped was a God of love and of purity and holiness. So that's why the very practical and tangible laws reflected that. Hey, don't mix your fabrics, don't wear stripes and polka dots, all these sort of, I mean, that's a, that's a modern commentary. It doesn't say stripes and polka dots, but don't mix the fabrics. All of these things that say, look, purity, one substance, all these practical, tangible things to separate them from all of the neighboring nations, not for the purpose of holding their noses because they're disgusted by the other cultures. They were supposed to be priests to the other cultures, that all of these signs were supposed to be invitations to the one true, loving, saving creator God. This is the purpose of the law. The Pharisees had turned it into this ridiculous way of impressing others. Ridiculous religious theater. When you look at verses 5 and 6, Jesus, again, it's a couple of deep cuts. He says, you know, you make your phylacteries wide and the fringes are long. And phylacteries were these prayer boxes that the priests would wear that contained the scriptures. They would wear them maybe on their chest or on their forehead. And he says, you've made them wide. In other words, it's like they're just like, they're wearing, you know, there was sort of like the um, instructions in the Old Testament for how the priests ought to dress. And what they had done is they were just like, oh, my prayers are just so huge. I'm just so into God's word. I'm just going to virtue signal by the size of my phylactery. The, the fringes, they started put, putting the, the beads on, their, on, on the fringes of their garments to track how many times they had prayed. And so they're just sort of waltzing through the street with, with, their, with, with the fringes flowing, just showing off how often that they pray. The whole thing is absurd. It's ridiculous. When you look at what God intended all of these things for, it was for ministry. This has all become leverage. And that's why Jesus goes on to say, through the loving the titles and loving the seats and loving the status and loving the retweets and the hearts and the likes, they ostracize the ordinary. And religious theater always ostracizes the ordinary. Because our God loves the ordinary because ordinary people is all that there are. The religious theater ostracizes messy people with messy lives because they always feel like they can't measure up. But we're not supposed to ostracize messy people because messy people are the only kind that there are. All of us in this church, you're sitting in a room of people whose lives, in various ways, in various moments, in various contexts, we're all a bit of a mess. We're full of the Holy Spirit. God is doing a deep renewal in us. And yet there are these parts when we look in the mirror and we are honest with ourselves, areas in which we do not resemble our loving and wise and caring God. We are batting a thousand on messiness this morning. And so what has happened here is they are ostracizing the very people that they are called to be drawing in. Verses 13 and 15, Jesus explains this even more deeply as the woes are building. As Jesus says, you'll travel 
these intense distances to make one single convert. And then he uses this really strong language, and you heard it. And when you do, you make them twice as much a child of hell. And you're just like, oof. By the way, back up for the context. Jesus is not actually speaking directly to, they might have been there listening. He's not speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes. If you go back to verse 1, then Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples. So this is a massive, salvific, theological whistleblowing that Jesus is doing. He wants all of the multitudes to know that the example that has been put before them of the God of Israel is not even close. He is announcing to the crowds and the disciples, he is calling out and speaking truth to this religious theater and saying, this is not close. How do they become twice as much a child of hell? That's strong and strange language. It's because what the the Pharisees are inviting them into is legalism. Legalism is not having spiritual patterns and practices in your life. If you are a person who has a high high commitment to prayer and meditation and worship, those are good and beautiful, powerful things. Those are the very means of grace God has given to do renewal. So having a high commitment and a desire to pray every day and spend time meditating or carving out some time in the morning or in the evening or whenever you do it, if you happen to have children sitting around, your, whether it's your dinner table or however you choose to do it, to like really intentionally show and minister the grace of God. That's not legalism. Spiritual practices are gifts of grace. Legalism is using all of that stuff, thinking it's earning something. We have no contribution to our salvation. Our only contribution is the sin that warrants it. So legalism is the idea that these things are earning me something. These things are putting me into God's graces. So Jesus is saying you're making them twice as much a child of hell. Because you're inviting them into something that is not saving faith. You're not inviting them to trust God. You're inviting them to, through their religious activity, save themselves in this failed attempt to be their own God. There is an obedience that's very good, but this isn't it. This is a toxic obedience. And the difference between obedience that is good and life-giving and obedience that is toxic and soul-crushing is that the obedience of the people of God that is good comes from a place of love for God, joy in God. The eyes have been opened and the heart has been opened to see the goodness of God, the plan of God, the creator God, the restoring God. We connect the dots and we're so, our hearts are so full of our love and care for him. The outworking of that is a desire to live into a greater congruence with who he's created us to be. That's the obedience that good. that's good. The obedience that's toxic is, hey, God, did you see that? Hey, God, did you see that? Hey, God, did you see that? Huh? 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 Leverage. The whole thing is leverage. Spiritual button pushing and lever pulling. And then making sure that everybody else around you sees it. So Jesus is wasting no words in just showing how uh, destructive this entire idea is. In verses um, 16 to 22, he continues, Jesus is so stupefied. At how, where the Pharisees have gone with this, he is, he, Jesus is amazed in a bad way. And he says, if you read through 16 to 22, he goes, How is it that you are saying that swearing an oath by the temple is nothing, but if you swear an oath by the gold of the temple, now that's something. Jesus is blown away. He goes, How you, you have this obsession with wealth and worth? That is so contrary to the very heart of God. Jesus can't, he is amazed by it. The amount of leverage going on in the religious theater. He's disgusted by it. 
He's blown away by this. He goes on to say, you're tithing your spices. You're, count, you're taking a little, a little uh, toothpick and you're counting out your spices and you're making sure 10% goes to the temple. And then you're neglecting justice and mercy and love and care. You're not being the priests of the nation that you're supposed to be doing. You think the culture is disgusting. You think sinners are disgusting. You think everybody who's not like you is disgusting. What? You've missed the entire thing. He says, what are we doing here? What are we doing? How did we get here? You know, the tithing, under the, and, he, and he says, these things you should have done. Because under the Mosaic law, they were commanded and instructed to tithe. And in the Old Testament, the tithe looked a few ways. The word tithe means tenth. So in one sense, it meant that they were giving a tenth of their increase to the temple. However, one of the things that was also provided in the law was consideration for the poor. And so when you read through all of the laws on tithing, God had these levels where it's like there's 10% that you're giving to the temple. But the poorer that you were, the smaller that that tithe got to the point where God would accept a tenth of a teaspoon of flour. And God said, I will accept this. Why? Because God needs nothing. He didn't need the tithe. He needed their hearts. And so he's communicating even the way in which they could come to the temple to worship. How he would accept the poorest of the poor. And here these guys are tithing their, tithing their spices trying to impress God. And missing the justice, the mercy for the love, the widow, the orphan, the refugee. They've missed it. God, Jesus is disgusted by it. So he calls them hypocrites and blind guides, right? For us, hypocrite means you say one thing, you do another. That's kind of how we use the word. But it comes from the Greek hypocritos, which means stage actor. So Jesus is like, you're acting. You're putting on a persona. You're not even that guy. Jesus is like, what are we doing here? You are confidently and manipulatively misleading people well you've put on quite a show really had them going but now it's time to go guys curtains finally closed you put on quite a show it's very entertaining uh, but it's over now so go ahead take a bow just he's not impressed Verse 25, this cup of greed, this self-indulgence he speaks of. Opposite of agape. Opposite of the self-emptying love. Agape love means to give of yourself, to prefer another. He's the opposite of the very nature of God. Verse 26, he continues. And this is the very first instruction he actually gives. Up until now, it's just, whoa, 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 guys. And all of a sudden, there's this little instruction. And it's interesting. It's the only one in there. But he says, if you look at it in verse 26, he says, first clean the inside of the cup. First clean the inside. Then the outside will be clean. Well, how do you clean your soul? How does a person do that? There's three three responses to that. The, the, The religious response, the theatrical response is, oh, yes, I can clean myself. No, you can't. The rebellious response is, I don't need any cleaning. Um, I could just live my life however I choose, indifferent to the ways of God, and God will accept me. No, he won't. But then there's a repentant response, and the repentant response is, Oh God, I need renewal. First, clean the inside. He's inviting even in the midst of these woes, humility, humbling. The antithesis of this ridiculous theatrical pride. Verse 27 and 28 calls them the whitewashed tombs. Gorgeous marble on the outside, not so... Gorgeous on the inside. 
lawless, right? Why does Jesus call all of their rule-keeping lawless? They're keeping the law on paper better than anybody. Nobody's even close to keeping the law like they're keeping the law. But Jesus calls it lawless. Why? How can you check all the boxes and have Jesus say it's lawless? Because as we heard in last week's sermon, love is at the center of the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. And the apostles go on to say that. Jesus says, you can hang all of the law and the prophets on loving God with everything you've got and loving your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Love is at the center of the law because at the core, religious theater is devoid of love. Jesus says this whole thing, all your box checking is lawless. And then he says, go ahead and complete the thing that your ancestors have started. You say you wouldn't have murdered the prophets, but you're, you're, you're confessing that you are, uh, that's your ancestry. And then, he, and then Jesus says, go ahead and finish what they've started. All of the blood of all of the righteous throughout all of salvation history is on you. Oh my goodness, are you catching this? He says, from Abel to Zechariah. Jesus goes from Genesis to the end of the uh, Old Testament prophets. He goes, all of it, it's on you guys, this generation. How is that possible? Because Jesus Christ is going to the cross, and they're going to crucify him, and they're going to shed his blood. And he's, he, is going, he, he is showing over and over and over that he is the Son of God. And they're going to reject him. And Jesus says, go ahead and complete what your answers have started. And you know, it's very hard to see ourselves in these Pharisees. Because frankly, we don't want to be anything like them. But if we were to do some diagnostic questions, we've got to ask the question, is it possible that I could be like them? Is it possible for me to claim to love, love this big nebulous thing called church? I love Redeemer. I love my church. But like specifically people, like it's like, do I, who am I, who am I loving? How are you loving? You're like, oh man, the sermon just took a turn. I do not like where this is going. Stay with me, there's good news. But you just gotta, just sit in this for a minute. Just sit in it. Who? How? I'm all about justice and mercy and I love the city and I'm all about vocational ministry and I'm all about all these big sweeping things. But like where is the evidence in my life that I'm... And I'm not, I'm, not going to, I'm not going to do the very thing the Pharisees did and burden you by giving you a huge list of how your life should look. I'm asking you, without any apologies, to ask yourself diagnostic questions to go, are there ways in my own life where there is religious theater at play because I just claim things that there's no evidence of and so may God do renewal in all of us and I'm I'm including myself in this right there's no pastors there's no there's nothing special about pastors pastors are called of God but you're called to in your vocation we are anointed by God and gifted to do what it is that we're doing but so are you for your vocations this is our ministry, but also you have one, your vocations. And Jesus Christ is the head of the church, not the pastors. I'm a sheep just like you. I'm the sheep that you're the short straw that gets to teach the other sheep so that all the sheep can go out into the city and be like shepherds and, and that God would do his work through us and continue to draw to him his glorious grace, right? There's, there's nothing special about pastors. So when I'm saying to you, you've got to ask diagnostic questions about how there's religious theater in your life. This week I spent a lot of time, a lot, before I got here, frankly not thinking this is like one of my least favorite sermons. Don't even want to, maybe we'll just skip Matthew 23. The diagnostic questions help us, I think, to say, oh, I actually want, oh God, I want to grow into a greater congruence of who you've created to be, me to be. Let's move on now to 
present relevance. And there is a lot of relevance to this because there's two ditches that the church has fallen in when we get off the path of the gospel. The first ditch, which you've been talking about, is the religious theater, self-righteousness. But the other ditch is lawlessness. Capitulate to the culture, feel the culture's pressure. Hey, here's our ideologies. They ought to be your ideologies. Here's our values. They ought to be yours. Oh, maybe the church needs to modernize and change with the times. Man, there's a difference between something being old and something being eternal. And the goodness of God, the wisdom of God, the love of God, the grace of God, that's not, those are not old ideas. It's eternal. So therefore, the more that we sit into, what does that mean for the way that I relate to the people in this room, or my neighbors, or my vocation, and how I see these people, how I go into the city, how do I view my money, how do we understand sexuality and identity? We can't just pull up to the, pull up to the cultural buffet and be like, yo, what do you guys got for me? And then they tell us, and then we go, okay, well, we'll adjust our faith accordingly. So that's the other bitch. Religious theater and then ridiculous juvenile lawlessness. Just go, yeah, whatever they say, that's what our God says too. It's absurd. But in the middle is the gospel, where we live our lives in congruence and bend our knee to the king, and yet we are ministers to the culture. And we love and care and have genuine friendships with people who don't think or act or value what we value. The present relevance is this. God's intent since Genesis 15 has been to bless all people through his people. And so through the gospel now of Jesus Christ, this goal is recovered. God's goal is resumed. United to Christ, you and I are his priests now. We are his priests indwelled by his spirit. We are his mobile temples. So may the message that's on our lips and the conduct that's in our lives be a bridge in our city. And not a barrier. There is a way to not agree with somebody and still be loving and caring and kind and respectful and give them dignity and build relationships. We must do this. May we live this way, minister this way. May we be the recovery of God's plan. His plan for renewal. His plan for All of these things accomplished ultimately through Jesus. They will be accomplished ultimately through Christ's return. I'm not going to burden you for us to go out and renew Kitchener-Waterloo. We can't do it. We're not called to do it. We're not able to do it. But we can be ministers in a way that the Pharisees never were. Because in a sense, the book of Acts is continually being written as Christ does this work through his church. Right. So gospel ministry is both sharing the message... The message that a king has come, that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be, that the resurrection happened in human history. And the implications of that now are that we can live in today's world, which is paradoxical. Beautiful things are happening, but undeniable brokenness. And we cannot be moved as we have an anger of hope, not fingers crossed hope, but certainty that renewal is coming. The renewal that the human soul and the people you work with that they want, that unsettledness, it is coming. It is coming in Christ. We are living in ease of it now, and we are seeking the good of the city. We want to bring our gifts and abilities to seek the good of the city from a sense of real joy and not burden. So we don't fall into this place of feeling like we're in a cultural battle where the church is either gaining ground or losing ground. That language is absurd. The resurrection happened, which means Jesus Christ opened a door that nobody can close. No political figure can close it. No war can close it. No atrocity can close it. No natural disaster can close it. The resurrection happened. Therefore, the church is not in a state of gaining and losing ground. We're not in a cultural battle, cultural war. We're to love and care for these people. Go out and 
be the priests that God intended since Genesis 15 to draw the nations, all kinds of people from all walks of life. He does it by his spirit. But we, are, we see ourselves as participants in this, and we do this with him. You know, at first glance, at this entire passage, you'd think Jesus really hates these people. Until you get to his conclusion. Until you get to the end. Verses 37 to 39, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He repeats it twice. In the ancient Hebrew culture, when you repeat a name twice, it's a sign of tremendous endearment to say someone's name twice. Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Deep love, deep care, deeply affectionate way of speaking. Jesus weeps over those who reject him. He's weeping over the Pharisees. He's weeping over the scribes. He's weeping over the teachers. He's weeping over those who are the subject of his woes. He's praying for the salvation of those who reject him. And then he extends his grace at the cross towards those who reject him. Jesus' heart overflowed with compassion for his city. May our hearts overflow in compassion for ours. Jesus didn't just give up on the nation. He died for it. He didn't just walk away in anger. He went to the cross in grace. Author Sally Lloyd-Jones, she got it right when she said the nails didn't keep Christ on the cross. His love for us did. We're the nails in his hands and he loves us anyways. I close with this. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. May God continue to soften our hearts and strengthen our resolve so that we go out as his priests who have a heart for our city to speak his words of gospel, to seek their good, care in practical ways, give a defense for the hope that we enjoy in him. Amen. Let's pray.